0: Lord, we sang about a fount. We we sang about a place where blood flows. We sang about a one, namely Jesus, who spilt his blood, Father, so that we might have our sins washed away. And Father, it may seem odd to think that blood could wash anything away. Yet, Father, in your glorious plan, you have determined that The only solution for sin is death, and this only solution for our sin problem is that your son experienced death, shedding his blood on our behalf. And therefore, Father, it is only his death, it is only his blood that could ever wash away our sins and make us right with you. Lord, we're so thankful that you were willing to have your son who has always existed, who has eternally been at your side, who is God of very God who was willing to come and take on flesh, who was willing to come, live a sinless, perfect life, and then, Father, die a sinner's death on my behalf and on behalf of your people, Father, that we might have our sins washed, that we might be forgiven, and that we might know you forever. Oh, what a glorious God you are that you have done this. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to obey the Father and to love us enough to do this. And oh, thank you, Spirit of God, for enabling us to see what the Son of God has accomplished and enabling us to believe in him. Help us, we pray, to discern the word this morning that it might be powerful in our lives, even as we consider this important subject. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We preach Jesus Christ as crucified, buried, and raised here in this church every week of the year. He is proclaimed as the authoritative one who bested sin, death, and hell for the glory of God and for the salvation and joy of God's children. And Lord willing, we will never back away from this commitment to herald the gospel of Christ and to plead with sinners to repent and believe in him. But here is a question. If we are so committed to preaching Jesus, why do we need to eat a small piece of bread and drink a small measure from a cup each month in our church in order to remember him? I think the answer is because God knew we would need a physical, tangible, able to be handled with the hands, witnessed with the eyes, touched with the lips and tasted with the tongue, reminder of what his son accomplished on our behalf. That as important as it is to hear the gospel, it is also important to be reminded through the rest of our senses that God did something for us in real time, in a physical way, at an actual point in human history. Pastor John Piper once preached a sermon on the Lord's Supper, and he said something, I think, that is quite profound. He writes, The Lord's Supper is a stark reminder, time after time, that Christianity is not New Age spirituality. It is not getting in touch with your inner being. It is not mysticism. It is rooted in historical facts. Jesus lived. He had a body and a heart that pumped blood and skin that bled. He died publicly on a Roman cross in the place of sinners so that anyone who believes on him might be rescued from the wrath of God. That happened once and for all in history. Therefore, he writes, the mental action of the Lord's Supper is foundationally remembering. Not imagining, not dreaming, not channeling, not listening, not going into neutral. It is a conscious directing of the mind back into history to Jesus and what we know about him from the Bible. The Lord's Supper roots us time after time in the nitty-gritty of history. Bread and cup, body and blood, execution and death. End quote. So when we partake, we are to remember that Jesus actually came 2,000 years ago And he actually bled and died for our sins in that day, and one day we will actually see his physical face, and we will sup with him in his eternal glory. My friends, the Lord's Supper is a gift from God. It is God's kindness to help us recall again and again that Christ has accomplished something and his accomplishment was real and that God's promise is true. We taste it, we hold it, we touch it because Jesus Christ really was a man in flesh who surrendered that flesh for us. And from our text today, we learn that Christ's meal is a time for Christ's disciples to tangibly consider what Christ's sacrifice to tangibly consider Christ's sacrifice together. That Christ's meal is a time for Christ's disciples to tangibly consider Christ's sacrifice together. It is a meal instituted by our Lord to be eaten on a regular basis, though the frequency of the meal is never really stipulated in the New Testament. It is also to be eaten by His church, by his called-out followers who have repented of their sins and believed in his name and identified themselves with him publicly through believers' baptism and who have committed themselves to a local assembly of believers, a church. And it is to be done in remembrance of his sacrifice of love for his people when he went to the cross as their substitute to pay their sin debt with God. Now, I want us to consider three observations from Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper in this passage. Observation number one, it is Christ's disciples who are to partake together. It is Christ's disciples who are to partake together. The elements of the meal were given by Jesus here to his group of disciples. In verse 26... Jesus took bread. Possibly this was unleavened bread, but this is highly debated. He blessed it, likely with one of the liturgical blessings that were used during the Jewish Passover meal. And then he broke that bread into pieces and he passed them out to his disciples who were in the room and who had been eating the rest of the meal with him. In verse 27, he acted in the same way as he took the cup, which would have been filled with wine, though likely somewhat diluted with water. And he gave thanks. That word thanks is a translation of the Greek word eucharistesos, which is why the Lord's Supper is often called by some the Eucharist. And he gave the cup to the disciples. To the disciples. It is important, I think, to understand who is in the room here. Who is receiving the elements of the supper? And who is partaking of this meal with Jesus? It was intended to be a time for his followers then to consider what he was about to do for them and for his followers from that day on to remember what he already did for them. This is a meal, my friends, for followers of Christ. It is not a meal for anyone else. It is intended to be exclusive. It is a meal enjoyed in Christ's spiritual presence now by Christians, and as verse 29 tells us, it is a meal that will also be enjoyed in Christ's physical presence one day by Christians. Now the early church, they saw this meal as a communal time among the local churches. And I want us to see together how the Apostle Paul specifically explain the Lord's Supper and how the early church was taught to practice it. So if you'd be so willing, keep a hand or a note in Matthew 26 and flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And please note with me in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. Paul, in his pastoral challenge, you might even say rebuke to this local church, had some important things to say about their eating of the Lord's table here in this letter. And in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, he writes this to this church. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now that word participation in verse 16 is where we get our words communion and fellowship. When Christians partake of the bread and the cup, they are participating, they are Fellowshipping, They are communing in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now that's odd language. We don't talk like that very often. You see, when Christians first become Christians through faith in Jesus Christ, when Christians first become Christians through faith in Jesus Christ, that individual is described in the New Testament as now being in Christ. Not in a physical way, as if our bodies were now somehow actually inside of Christ's body, like some wild science fiction novel. But we are in Christ in that we are now spiritually connected to him, spiritually united to him, even spiritually enveloped by him. We don't stop being ourselves when we believe in Jesus. We don't stop being ourselves with our own minds and bodies and wills but our identity is now altered. We are now eternally connected to and united with and spiritually enveloped by Jesus, who has made us his own through his saving work. As Romans 6 tells us, his death on the cross is now our death to sin and its enslavement. And his resurrection to life is now our resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life. Jesus died and rose. You and I, if we are in Jesus Christ through faith, we have spiritually died and we have spiritually been raised. We are in Christ. And when believers feast on the bread and the cup during the Lord's Supper, we are participating together in a meal that shows our intimate connection to Jesus himself. Notice verse 17 here carefully. Once again, as Paul talks about this bread and its important symbolism, he says, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now the church is called, the church of Jesus is called here and numerous other places, it is called the body of Christ, And here this body with its many members, its many believers who make up its whole, the body of Jesus Christ, here the body of Jesus Christ shows its unity together in Christ when the members partake of that one bread together during the communion meal. It's The Lord's Supper, it is a time for members of Christ's spiritual body to demonstrate their unity together as they commune around the bread and the cup. We show that each of us, though we are divided in individual pieces, we are all part of one, and that one is the body of Jesus Christ. We are signifying to each other and to anyone else who might be watching that we are a unified whole, for we are in Christ. All forms of backgrounds... All different opinions and a whole host of other things. But when it comes to the gospel and the truth of God's word, we are one and we love each other in it. That's what we show when we assemble and do this thing. Now, turn to chapter 11. One chapter over. This church was a problem church. And Paul addresses their problems. And one of the problems he addresses is that Though that's what communion or the Lord's Supper is, a time for the individual members to show their unity as the body of Jesus Christ, this church in Corinth was not doing that. This church dishonored the Lord's Supper because they dishonored the body of believers through a selfish disunity. Chapter 11, look at verse 17 with me. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You see, what's happening here in the church in Corinth, if you got rich people and you have poor people, You have those who have all the money and they're in charge in a lot of ways in society, and you have those who have very little and they're not in charge in any way in society, and yet they're part of the same church, believers in Jesus Christ. And what they would do is they would gather together on a regular basis for the purpose of enjoying the Lord's Supper, but the rich people who had more leisure, more free time, they would come together first, and they would eat a meal. They would eat a lot of food. They would drink a lot of wine. They would consume and fellowship together But then they'd altogether forgotten the poor among them who couldn't come and sup with them and had very little to eat and drink. They were disunified. They were not showing the love of Jesus Christ. They were not demonstrating that though they are individualized as many, they are altogether one as one body in Christ, for they are favoring some over another. And Paul says, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. They had abused the symbol of the Lord's Supper. Meant to be a time where Christians show unity in Christ, they had turned it into a time where only disunity was shown. And in verses 23 through 36, we read Paul's record of the Lord's Supper, how it is to be a common time of remembrance, held in humble gratitude together for what Jesus accomplished for God's people. He says in verse 23, For I receive from the Lord... He comes. So Paul tells us that this is what the supper is supposed to be. A time when God's people come together and through the partaking of the the bread and, and the cup, they symbolize what Jesus has done for them, done for them communally, done for them as a church family. It is meant to be a unifying time, not a time that separates like they had made it. But then finally, in verses 27 through 32, A stark warning is given here by Paul to anyone who partakes of this meal in an unworthy way. And by the context, I think we have to conclude that this unworthy way is in a manner that undermines the unity of believers as they are connected to Christ. Look at verse 27. He says, Whoever therefore, And some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul says that they are not to partake of the meal in a way that fails to discern the body. Notice that in verse 29. Discern the body. Christians must discern the body, which I think means that Christians must carefully consider how we are approaching the body of Christ, the church, the people of God, and how we are treating the body of Christ, the church, the people of God. When we partake of the meal, it is not, as I thought as a kid, a time to first of all sit and try to name all the things I'd done wrong that week to make sure I'd confess those before I partook of the meal. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying before you take a, partake of the meal, make sure that you don't have any animosities between you and another brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Make sure that you are going out of your way to make sure that there is unity between you and the body of Jesus Christ. And go out of your way to make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is foremost in all of your relationships in the body of Jesus Christ. Because if you don't discern the body, then you are eating and drinking terrible judgment upon yourself. This is not a casual thing that we do once a month. This is a serious, sober thing to do that we are signifying that we are one in Christ. And according to Jesus through the Apostle Paul, that symbol is not something that is to be tarnished. All of this, I think, has important implications as we turn back to Matthew. All of this has important implications, I think. First of all, Participants of the Lord's Supper should be true believers. I find no, th- no place in Scripture that encourages anyone to partake of the Lord's Supper except those who are of the Lord, except those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, except those who are a part of His spiritual body that is the church because they've seen the gospel of Jesus, they've embraced Jesus in repentant faith, and they are now one with His people. If you are not a Christian, if you're, wait- if you're not sure, you're still debating whether or not Christ is to be your Savior and Lord, if you are not a Christian, if you've never repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, my friends, we love you and we're so glad you're here. But this table is not for you. This table is for believers. And we want you to be a believer. We want you to know Jesus Christ. We want you to turn from your sins and embrace Him in faith and enjoy this table with us. But friends, this table is only for believers. And secondly, I am convinced that because of this, participants of the Lord's Supper should be baptized church members. Now, here's why. How can I or you or we say, how can you say that you are walking in right fellowship with God and his people walking in proper unity with the body of Jesus Christ as a believer if you refuse to obey Christ's command to be baptized as a believer. Christ commands baptism of believers. And to refuse that command is to refuse the identity of Jesus Christ as it is witnessed among his people. How can you say that you are walking in right fellowship with God and his people if you refuse to obey God's command to be baptized as a believer? I would say if you have not been baptized, if you're unwilling to do that, don't partake of the Lord's Supper. I would also say, how can you say that you are walking in right fellowship with God and his people if you refuse to commit to a local church and its pastors and its gospel ministry? How can you say you're living in right fellowship with God's people when your approach to the Christian life is a Lone Ranger approach? When you're out on your own, visiting one here, visiting one there, thinking of yourself as the overall in the overall body of Christ, but never making a commitment, as I think the New Testament commands us to again and again and again, a commitment to a local assembly of Christians. I don't think you can say that you're walking in right fellowship with God if you're refusing baptism or you're refusing church membership. And therefore, my counsel to you will always be do not partake of this Lord's Supper until you have dealt with those things. And third, participants of the Lord's Supper should be walking in Christian love and unity with other Christians. I'm thankful for a friend of mine who just a few weeks ago asked my counsel on whether or not I thought it wise for him to partake of the Lord's Supper. And it was a hard issue I don't know that he had done anything between himself and this other person that brought a discord in the relationship, but he wanted to make sure that he had doubled his efforts with this person before he partook of the Lord's Supper. And though I wish that we could have enjoyed it together, I am so thankful that he was willing to put the priority of the unity of Christ before his participation in the Lord's Supper. My friends, this is not something for just the holiest among us to do. This is something for all of us to consider as Christians, that when we partake of this table, we are showing something. And to take that image and to tarnish it, to tarnish it, that is sin, and we must avoid it. Now, some of you may be wondering, since some of you may be wondering, I do not think the possible participation of Judas Iscariot at this first communion meal that it negates anything of what we have just seen in 1 Corinthians or even here in Matthew. The gospel accounts are actually unclear as to whether or not Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, was present during the institution of the communion ceremony at the end of the Passover meal. Luke's account, you can look it up later if you'd like, Luke's account somewhat implies that Judas was there, though other accounts give some sense that he may have already left. For instance, Mark's account. You see, the gospel writers were not always concerned about sharing every little detail, and we ultimately do not know whether Judas was present then with the rest of the twelve. But, if Judas was there, and he did partake Then just as we read in 1 Corinthians 11, he was eating and drinking damnation unto himself, as he was himself not a believer in Jesus, and he certainly did not rightly discern the body of Jesus. So, summing all this up, you should only partake of this divine ordinance if you are a born-again Christian walking in unity with the local church now that doesn't mean that other christians who are walking in unity with another local church and they come here and visit shouldn't partake we we welcome that we want christians who know jesus love jesus are following jesus faithfully who are parts of churches when they come here to celebrate with us because one day this meal is going to be all christians around the circle with king jesus but this is a place for christians christians who are walking in fellowship with christians that's the first observation this morning. Second observation is, disciples are to consider the profound meaning behind the meal. Back in Matthew 26, the bread that Jesus mentions is symbolic of Christ's broken body on behalf of his church. In verse 26 of chapter 26, it says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Take, eat, this is my body. These words have sadly been the source of so much conflict for the church of Jesus Christ. Some say the word is should be taken purely literal. When you partake of the bread, you are actually partaking of Christ's body because the bread transforms into the body as you consume it. We do not believe that here. After all, Jesus himself was sitting bodily at the table next to his disciples when he said the words, This is my body. His physical body was there right next to them, so he didn't mean that they would actually consume his physical flesh. No, these words are certainly symbolic, just as the Passover meal itself was laden with symbolism, for he uses the bread here as a metaphor for his body. Just as the bread was broken by Jesus here and passed out to his disciples, so his physical body would be broken on behalf of his beloved disciples. Oh, hear the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said in Isaiah 53, 5 of Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah tells us that his body was beaten to the point that it was beyond recognition. It is easy to look at the picture of Jesus and say his body was broken. And as Paul tells us, again, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. You. My friends, Jesus' body was broken for you. He was wounded for you. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. Jesus' his body was beaten and broken for you and for me out of love. Can you believe it? He did this for us. He was willing to sacrifice himself in such a way to have his body so beaten up to the point that it was killed for us. The cup, the cup is symbolic of Christ's new covenant blood for his people's sin. Verse 27 says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The cup, of course, implies that it was filled, it was a filled cup with contents that matched the symbolism which Jesus was seeking to convey here. Wine from the grapes of a vine made a perfect visual for the blood that he would soon shed. He told his disciples to drink of that cup because it symbolized the blood of the covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood would be shed as a substitute for the sins of sinners That they might be forgiven of their sins. What a picture. Oh, my friends, the salvation of sinners, Jesus' salvation of sinners as a substitute on their behalf, is exactly why he came. Do you remember what this gospel has already said? Think back to the very beginning, the very first chapter of Matthew. Chapter 1, verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, talking about Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. At the very beginning of the book, it's talking about the substitutionary atonement where Jesus would step in and pay the price for your sins and mine. And Matthew 20, verse 28 says, that even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He gave His life for you and for me. And this cup signifies God's fulfillment of His word and His covenant. Now, the old covenant, which God made with the people of Israel after they had left Egypt whereby the law of God was then established with them, the old covenant was instituted this way. Listen to this from Exodus 24, verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That old covenant was established through a sacrifice of blood. And it was applied then to the people. It was ratified. God's commitment to them, shown in this covenant, ratified through blood. But many years later, God promised another covenant that he would make. A new covenant that he would commit to his people. The prophet Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 through 34, And I will remember their sin no more. God tells us that he would bring about this new covenant by securing the forgiveness of his people's iniquity. And this covenant also would require blood. This covenant also would require the spilling of blood because if his people's sins are actually to to be forgiven, if his people's iniquity are actually to be atoned for, then blood would have to be shed and a far superior blood than that of bulls and goats and lambs. It would need to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. It is this new covenant that Jesus tells us he initiates and institutes here in Matthew 26. Because this covenant would be sealed by his own blood, which he would spill out for sinners at the cross. My friends, when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, it was in fulfillment of and a reality for you that God has made a promise. That if you are in Jesus Christ, if you believe upon his name, if you put your faith in him, your sins will be washed away forever and you will know God. For you will know Jesus. So when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you should carefully, prayerfully, and thankfully consider what these symbols say about Christ's sacrifice for you and for the rest of his church. These symbols these symbols, tell you that your sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And they tell you that Jesus paid the price to redeem his church, his precious people some who are sitting around you even today. And they tell you, these symbols tell you that a new covenant from God has been ratified, which enables you to know him intimately and to have his perfect word written on your heart. Third observation today. Disciples are to partake, they are to partake with expectation of a meal to come. In verse 29, Christ appears to be referring to the full kingdom of God still to come, which will be marked by his arrival back to earth. In verse 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Though the kingdom has now been inaugurated through the spiritual life of Christ's people, This kingdom awaits a full consummation when Christ will return to earth. We've talked about this numerous times. We saw this back in chapter 25, where in verse 34 it says that the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Right now, if we know Christ, there's a sense in which you and I are in the kingdom because Christ is in us. His spirit resides in us. And we have the church, which is the way he expresses his kingdom today. But there is a reality of his kingdom, a physical nature of his kingdom, the full consummation of his kingdom that will arrive when Jesus returns to earth. The king will come and he will reign in his glorified physical body on this earth. The same body that after he went to the cross, he took back up again in resurrection because he's God and can do so. And I think we get the sense that the kingdom's consummation is what Jesus is speaking of here when he instituted the Lord's Supper. First of all, he speaks of drinking of the vine again With his disciples in his Father's kingdom. This gives us the sense, I think, that he's referring to actual physical drink, that with his physical mouth he will drink with us from the vine on that coming day. Can you imagine that? Secondly, the expectation of Christ's second coming is what Paul had in mind at the end of the communion meal when he wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right now, we're in proclaiming mode. When we partake together, we're proclaiming to ourselves and to others what Jesus has done. And we're going to do that only together, us, until Jesus comes. And when he comes, it's not just going to be us, it's going to be him with us partaking of this meal. Therefore, this meal is to include a longing for the physical participation of the Savior that Christians will one day experience. Christians eat and drink now by remembering what Christ accomplished for them at the cross. And Christians also eat and drink now with expectation that we will one day eat with Jesus face to face. We look back and we also look forward. Listen to, listen to the Apostle John's description of that day to come. Now, I love to think about when I read Apostle John, his words later, I think about the fact that he was one of those men up in that upper room listening to Jesus institute this Lord's Supper and hearing Jesus say, verse 29, that he would not drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day when he would drink it new with us in the Father's kingdom. John's in that room, okay? And then years later, decades later, God gives him a revelation, a book that we call The Revelation (laughs) at the end of the Bible. And he says near the end of that book in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, these incredible words. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. I believe that one day the church of Jesus Christ will be assembled around Jesus in physical bodies made perfect glorified with him and we will celebrate together what Jesus has done and who Jesus is and we won't do it simply looking each other in the face but we will do it with Jesus present looking him in the face and that meal will have a name to it it will be the marriage supper of the lamb Where the Lord Jesus Christ will have a meal. As the Lamb of God, he will have a meal with his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. For all his people will be assembled. The multitudes will come. All of his peoples whom he has called to himself, Christians from the varying parts of the earth. And they will come and they will eat with King Jesus. Oh, let's face it. When we eat the meal, we're often distracted. It's hard sometimes to remember Jesus well. It's a chore, it's work to try to remember Jesus when we gather and do that thing. But on that day, my friends, we look with expectation to it. We're going to eat with the king, and there's not going to be any distractions. We're going to enjoy that meal with him, and we're going to feast for an eternity on his goodness. Oh, my friends, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you should also long for the day when you will eat with Jesus face to face. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and he will eat it with us in the kingdom of his Father. Christ's meal is a time for Christ's disciples to tangibly consider Christ's sacrifice together. Let me first ask you, are you a disciple? Has the blood of Jesus been applied to you? Have you recognized your sin before God, repented of it, and believed in Jesus who died to pay for your sins have you put your trust in Christ alone oh do that today and Christian Christian here today are you approaching the Lord's Supper with humility and unity and gratitude and expectation does it mean something to you is it significant in your life And does your life exemplify that? Do you prepare for it? Do you think hard about it? Do you make sure your mind is ready to consider it when it happens? In two weeks, we will partake of the Lord's Supper together as we try to do at the end of every single month in our church. So let me ask, when we partake at the end of this month, do you need to obey Jesus in believer's baptism or membership? Do you need to follow Jesus in clear New Testament commands to be baptized as a believer in Jesus and to join a local church that you might be part of a local body and serve a local place? And do any of your relationships with other believers need some mending? Are you allowing discord to fester? Or are you willing to deal with them before you partake? That you and your brother or you and your sister might come to that meal and rejoice together because though there was a separation, now there has been unity found in Christ. And will you be ready to remember and to rejoice? Will you consider it something of significance? Or will you partake in an unworthy manner? Oh, Christian, See the glory of the table, the joy of the table, the blessing of the table, but also understand, be careful over the table. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I thank you for this church family, and I thank you that you have given us such a visual demonstration of the gospel through the communion service, Lord. I pray that our church would see the glorious significance of it, that we would love it and embrace it and be thankful for it, and that, Father, we would take it seriously that we would promote it well among others, Father. And that, Lord, when your son Jesus comes, we would be able to rejoice and say, though that was great to remember Jesus, now we get to see Jesus. Oh, Lord, we pray, Maranatha, our Lord, come quickly for us. Let us eat with you, we pray. In Jesus' name.